Hey everyone, um, I'm Janet. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Um, welcome everyone. Tonight we are back near the beginning of the book. We just done doctor's opinion. And tonight we are going to do Bill's story on page one. I really love Bill's story because to me, it's like a perfect 12-step um, call. He talks about what he was like in the illness, what happened, and then the awesomeness of what is like what life is like now for him. And I went through this and I just found a bunch of things that Bill tried. I found nine things he tried that didn't work. So as I go through, I'm just going to kind of list those things or point them out so that we can hopefully avoid some of the pitfalls that Bill fell into. So he starts off talking about how it was wartime. And he said, and here I was, you know, there was love, applause. I was part of life at last and I discovered liquor. So I think, you know, what this tells us is that bad things aren't the cause of, of drinking or binging because Bill was happy when he took the first drink. So trying to avoid bad situations doesn't matter. If we're compulsive eaters, we're going to binge even in good situations. And he says, I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. Well, that's the second thing. Warnings that we've heard before, don't do it. Isn't it funny? Because it's like, generally, if we see a sign that says, you know, like danger, danger zone ahead, or, you know, or we're going into a lake and it says, don't go, you know, there's a sign that says no swimming alligators. We heed those warnings, right? We don't go swimming in a lake where there's a warning that there's alligators, but he was warned about alcohol. Um, in fact, his father was an alcoholic and it didn't matter. Warnings don't help people like us. And then he was lonely. And again, he drinks, right? He drinks when things are good and he drinks when things were bad. And if we flip to page three, he starts talking about how it progresses. The drive for success is on. And then he says, but he was a potential alcoholic. And at one of the finals in law school, he was too drunk to think or write. So in law school, 100% of your grade is generally your final exam. You know, they don't care about participation usually. They, there's no paper, none of that. It's you get one final exam and that is it. And he was too drunk to do it. So that to me is a third thing that didn't work, necessity. It was necessary for him to be sober at that time. It didn't matter. Necessity doesn't do it, right? So who of us, like, let's say, or I don't know, some, someone's daughter's getting married and they have to fit into a certain dress. They need to, it doesn't work. Necessity doesn't work for us. And, you know, we see life was good for Bill. He says, fortune through money and applause my way. So people respected him. He was making money. Life was good, but he declined anyway. Um, until page five, where he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. He crossed the line. What does that mean? It became a necessity. 
I think page 24 of our book tells us, it says that at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, the eating of every compulsive eater, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking or binging is of, absol is of absolutely no avail. Okay, so it was a necessity now, alcohol. He had to drink. So that happens with most of us. Um, some of us may remember where we crossed the line. Um, we usually hope the line is like 10 years ahead of where we are, but unfortunately it's usually about 10 years in our rear view mirror. Um, I think I crossed the line by the time I was five years old, um, where the obsession just took hold and we had no choice. And so once it becomes a necessity, we can no longer help ourselves. Bill could no longer help himself. He had to be rescued. And he continues on and he says, gradually things got worse. He was about to go on a business deal that was going to be really good, but he got drunk and lost that opportunity. And he said, this had to be stopped. I'm on page five. He said, um, I'd written sweet, lots of sweet promises before, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business. And so I did. And what this tells us is number four, something he tried, a really strong commitment. Well, that doesn't help, right? Um, if someone has cancer, they can't make a commitment to make their cancer cells stop multiplying because without outside intervention, they're powerless over it. And so commitment wasn't enough because his problem wasn't lack of commitment. It was lack of power. That's always our problem. That's what our book tells us um, really clearly in the chapter, We Agnostics, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Um, so he, he swore, he said, this time I mean business. And his wife thought, oh yeah, he's promised a lot of times before, but this time he really means business. And he did. He, it wasn't like, I promise I won't fingers crossed behind his back. He really meant business. But what happened? Shortly after, he came home drunk. He said, where had been my high resolve? I didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Why didn't it come to mind? His promise not to do it again. His memory of how bad the drinking binges were. Because for people like us, there is a disconnect between our memory of binge hangovers, of drink hangovers, of whatever it is, and our conscious mind where we make the decisions. Normally, right, if I'm about to, let's say, cross a street um, and there's a truck coming, my memory will say, Janet, you know that if a truck comes and it hits you, you're roadkill. Reaches my conscious mind, I don't cross the street. Um, or I've talked about, I have a cat allergy. So in my memory, all these data points of cat-induced asthma attacks, I'm about to go into a pet store, boom. My memory sends a thought to my mind saying, don't, it's dangerous and protects me. But when it comes to alcohol for an alcoholic or food for a compulsive eater, there is a disconnect. It's like a broken bridge. The memory of the suffering and humiliation of the past binges can't get across. So of course it hadn't come to mind because he had a broken bridge where it came to alcohol. 
And he said, what happened? There was an appalling lack of perspective, right? That's our insanity. I looked up perspective. It's a particular, a particular attitude towards something and it's broken. There's a lack of perspective. It would be like, I like to run. I mean, sometimes I would feel like I would like to run five days in a row. Maybe when I was 22, I could run five days in a row. I'm 62. A lack of perspective would be me thinking 40 years later, I could still run the way that I could have run in my 20s. That'd be a lack of perspective, which I don't have when it comes to, okay, a little bit, um, but, but not to the point of real danger. Okay, page six, number five. Bill's drinking because... That's what alcoholics do, just like compulsive eaters binge. And he says, okay, I was drinking. And as the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I may as well get good and drunk then. So he thought next time, which probably like tomorrow, I'll start tomorrow, but I may as well eat everything in the house now. So I call that the magic pillow cure. I may as well get, you know, binge my brains out now because I'm going to put my head on this magic pillow for seven hours and suddenly it's going to give me the ability to wake up and not have food obsession. So number five, the thing Bill tried, I'll start tomorrow. It doesn't work because, you know, imagine someone again who has cancer and says, Tomorrow, I'll make my cancer cells stop multiplying. No, you're not going to get any more power tomorrow than you did today, unless there's some kind of outside intervention. So what does he have? Remorse, horror, and hopelessness the next day. And I would say number six, something Bill might have tried, is remorse. We think if we feel badly enough, that'll do it. The guilt, the shame, the remorse will do it. It doesn't. Back in the doctor's opinion, it says we may, you know, the alcoholic is over remorseful and makes many resolutions, but never a decision. What kind of decision are they talking about? A decision to submit our entire lives to God. Remorse doesn't do it. So page seven, Bill again gets in more trouble. This time he goes to a doctor who explains to him that his incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop, why it doesn't work. And so he says, surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. Number seven, something Bill tried, self-knowledge. Well, again, back to our friend who has cancer. If someone has cancer, and they understand the exact way cancer cells multiply and even how they got cancer, that's not gonna help them one iota because the problem isn't lack of knowledge. Again, it's lack of power. So page eight, we see Bill and um, it's really heartbreaking. He says, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Look at the illness symptoms, loneliness, despair, bitterness, self-pity, and how he describes it. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. 
quicksand, right? That's something a person can't get out of by themselves. They need to be rescued, right? He says, I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. But here's something else he tried. A first step by itself. A first step alone doesn't do it. Someone says, I'm powerless over cancer and my life is unmanageable. It doesn't make one single cancer cell stop multiplying. So he took a first step. That's great, but only if it's followed up by more. The more is coming, not yet for him. Number nine, trembling. I stepped from the hospital, broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Number nine, fear. Fear doesn't do it. Um, because fear isn't from God. And we can be afraid. I think a lot of us are afraid. We see the numbers on the scale going up and up and up, and we're scared. It doesn't help. Fear doesn't do it. But then it's like there's a switch. And he says, he thinks he's about to be maybe locked up. Everyone else thinks that too. And he says, how dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch, my last binge. I was soon to be catapulted. Look how he says it. I didn't, he doesn't say I catapulted myself. He's passive. I was catapulted by God into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. What is this fourth dimension? And he says, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. You know, so often we talk about how this illness is progressive, and it is. But now here they're telling me something really beautiful. Recovery is progressive also. I start out with some happiness, some peace, and a little bit of usefulness, and it keeps, it keeps going more and more. But he doesn't know yet that that's on the horizon, that God has launched a search and rescue mission for him um, using one of his friends who's a newly recovered alcoholic, who, by the way, didn't live in New York where Bill lived. But that's geography is not a problem for God. So there's Bill. It's a November day evening. He's drinking in his kitchen. He's thinking, I got enough booze around my house where I can keep drinking. and. Then the phone rings and it's his old friend, Ebby, who he used to binge with, who just happens to be in town, just happens. Um, Bill hadn't seen him in years sober. It's been years. And Bill, I mean, he's real in the illness. He's like unmindful of his welfare. He didn't care about Ebby. He just said, we can recapture the spirit of other times. Um, so he was drinking and planning on drinking more when Ebby knocks at the door and he opens the door and he's like, okay, what's up? This guy, his eyes are glowing. His skin looks fresh. There's something inexplicably different. Something's going on here. And he invites him in and Ebby comes in and what does Bill do? Just like any good alcoholic host, he shoves a drink at him. And Bill says, and Ebby says, no, I've got religion. And Bill's like, what had gotten into him? He wasn't himself. No, he was transformed. 
This program is about real transformation, caterpillar to butterfly stuff. He was transformed. And he said, I've got religion. Well, what does that mean? Did it mean he started going to church every Sunday? So the dictionary definition of religion is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. The belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. So no sugarcoating God. No, uh, let me not talk about God and religion in case it scares them off. Bill asked what happened. He said, I got religion. And Bill's like, okay, like this is a little weird. And he's saying, let him rant. But he said, Ebby didn't rant. He was calm. He talked about how he was about to be locked up for drinking. And then two men came in, told the judge that they had a way to help him. A two-pronged program, a simple religious idea, which is trust and reliance on God and surrender of our lives to God, and a practical program of action, cleaning up our past, living lives of integrity, and helping others. And that was two months ago. And Ebby was changed enough that he was now going out and helping people. So if anyone is sitting here today and has been binging today, it's October 20th, December 19th, 60 days from now, you can be a transformed person helping others. I mean, you could do it sooner, um, but assume like before the end of the year, you can have what Ebby had. So he says, he'd come to pass this experience along to me, we're at top of page 10, if I cared to have it. And Bill says, I was shocked, but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. We get interested when we're hopeless. You know, we have to really get that our lives are unmanageable, that things don't work. Bill was hopeless and he knew it. And so he listened to Ebby talk for hours, not a quick five minute conversation. We put in the time when we're helping someone. And Bill said, I'd always believed in a power greater than myself. Um, he said, I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are. He wasn't an atheist, but he was a practical atheist, just the way I used to be. I always believed in God, but it was irrelevant to my life. And that's how Bill was. He believed in God. And he says, few people really are atheists. And of course not. Um, my favorite line on page 55 of the book, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God, right? So deep down in everyone, we have like two lungs, two kidneys, a heart, a stomach, and the fundamental idea of God. God put it there himself. So a person could say, I don't think I have lungs. I'm a lung atheist. I mean, right? As I would say, this is America. We could believe whatever we want, but we have lungs. You know, if we're breathing, if we're alive, we have lungs. And so he's saying, few people really are. And so Abby keeps talking to him um, and he finds out Bill believes in an impersonal God because he said, okay, I believed in, you know, God who created things, but kind of like a God who created the world 
and then sit, is just sitting back watching Netflix or something and ignoring us. He's saying a God personal to me, whose love, superhuman strength and direction. He says, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut. Why would someone get irritated, right? If you hear that the creator of the universe is available to you and his love, superhuman strength and direction, why would you get irritated? Well, on page 11, he talks about religion. He says, I adopted what seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. You know, it's easy to believe in a doorknob God or uh, the wind as God, because a doorknob and a wind won't require certain things of me, won't require that I be honest, won't require that I make self-sacrifices for the good of other people won't require that I stretch myself in order to love others. So it's like, yeah, you know what? Some things are convenient and not difficult. Um, okay, but the rest I disregarded. And Bill had other reasons for having trouble with God. He'd been in the war and he says the wars, the burnings, the chicanery. I always stumble on that word because I have no idea what it means. Um, and he said, they made me sick. And he went so far as to say, if there was a devil, he seemed the boss. Basically, Bill was questioning why all the suffering, right? A legitimate question. And, you know, Ebby didn't sit there and give some religious argument, you know, or try and prove anything about God. He just said, Bill, all I know is that when I surrendered my life to God, God did for me what I can't do for myself. God removed the food, the drink obsession from him, just like he removes the food obsession for all of us. And, you know, Bill's listening. And Abby said, after I had admitted defeat, um, I was basically raised from the dead, taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best I'd ever known. And, you know, so Bill's talking about Abby and he's like, had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. So it's not like this power is a part of ourselves. The knowledge of God is deep down within us. Um, but he said, had this power originated inside him? And it said, no, because there had been no power in Abby, just like there was no power at Bill in Bill. And then he's like, you know, maybe religious people are right. The people who believe in a God personal to them who could help them. He said, here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. So he said, who cares about the musty past? You know, the things you read about or hear. Some work was done in a human heart. Impossible work in a human heart. And he said, here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table, right? Page 153 of our book says the age of miracles is still with us. We are supposed to recover through a miracle and then go out and be part of miracles to other people. And he said, his friend shouted great tidings. Great tidings just means good news, good news. It is possible to recover and never, ever drink or binge again. 
And he said, my friend was more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped a new soil. He had a root transplant, right? That's what this program's about. We're like transplanted from the garden of self to the garden of God. You know, God just transplants us and rewires us as we go through these steps. And Bill's like saying, you know, he still had some prejudice about God. And his friend said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? He didn't have to have the same religious conviction that Ebby had. And then Bill says, that really worked. Only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. Step one isn't a beginning, right? We could know we're powerless and our lives are unmanageable forever. That, that's not recovery. Recovery starts when we say, maybe. I'm willing to believe that maybe there's a God, there's a power greater than myself who can restore me to sanity. And Ebby says to him that upon a foundation of this willingness, um, he could recover. What might that look like in practical terms? I think it could start with a prayer like this, like a, a willingness prayer, a maybe prayer. So God, I don't know if you exist. And if you do exist, I don't know if you're willing to help me. But if you do exist and you're willing to help me, I need help. And the worst that happens is nothing. But our experience is that there is a God and that prayers like that activate something in the spiritual realm like they did with Bill. He said, um, the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow he had lived and shivered many years melted. He says, I stood in the sunlight at last. And he was, I was, thus was I convinced, bottom of page 12, God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough, enough to do the work of finding him. Over and over in this book, it talks about seeking. God wants us to seek for him, but he doesn't hide in a hard place, but he wants us to seek. And Bill says, at last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. So imagine like this. He's got scales, one of pride, one of prejudice. They fall down when he's like, okay, I'm willing to believe. And then he sees a new world. It's almost like he was nearsighted and, you know, he, or he had cataracts. That's a better way. He had cataracts and they were gone. And now he could really see. What is pride and prejudice? Pride, thinking of myself too much and or thinking too much of myself. And prejudice, thinking too little of others and or thinking of others too little. That fell from his eyes and he changed. And he says um, he realized the sense of God's presence had been blotted out in his life by worldly clamors. So that's how we can blot God. Um, put those scales back on our eyes by worldly clamors. So that's talk, talked about in depth on page 55, the things that block us, um, calamity, pomp, and worship of other things, worldly clamors, things that take up too much of our attention. Um, I think like media for me can be a worldly clamor. If I spend too much time on it, it's like the voice of God grows weaker. 
So we need to um, be aware of that. And then he went to the hospital and it says, why? Because he showed signs of delirium tremens. It wasn't physically safe for him to, to just stop drinking alcohol abruptly. And what did he do at the hospital? He says, I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. So it wasn't a God heal me. I mean, it was that, but it was more than that. It was God do whatever you want with me. I'm yours. It was a surrender of himself. He says, I offered myself to God. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. God was going to take care of me and I was going to follow his direction. And then he says, I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my new found friend take them away root and branch. You know, being hard on ourselves gets a bad rap. People say, oh, I'm too hard on myself. Everyone tells me I'm too hard on myself. But Bill's saying he ruthlessly faced his sins or his character defects, but he was able to do them because of the second part of that sentence and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. We can admit our character defects. We can look at them. We can admit all the like ugliness in our soul because once we admit them to God, to ourselves and another human being, we can get to step seven where we ask him to remove them. And he does. I mean, if I go to the dermatologist and I have a growth on a part of my body and I'm embarrassed and I don't want to show her, she's not going to be able to remove it from me. I have to say, yeah, here's this like this growth that I have now. And yeah, it's ugly and I don't like it, but can you help me? And then she'll, you know, take her slicer and slice it off and it may hurt, but it's better. And it's not going to grow into anything malignant. So that's why we can be hard on ourselves. It's not for the purpose of just being hard on ourselves. It's because when we're ruthless about looking what's wrong, then we can bring it to God. God can't remove something we don't bring to him. I mean, he can, he's God, he can do anything, but that's not the process that he's outlined for addicts. So Bill goes ahead and says that Ebby came and visited him, made, you know, basically went through the steps. They didn't call them steps back then, um, went through all his resentments. And then he talks about how he would meditate. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would become uncommon sense. As a result of surrendering our lives to God, right? Our book tells us we intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And it tells us what to do when we have doubts, when we're not sure what to do. We sit quietly, asking only for direction and strength to meet our problems as he would have us. So when we're not sure of what course of action to take, we get quiet and we ask for basically knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry it out. And he says, Ebby promised him when he did these things, he would have a new relationship with his creator and a way of living which answered all his problems, right? The goal of this book, a new relationship with our creator and the elements of a way of living, which answer all of our problems. So he says, what are the requirements? 
belief in the power of God. So not just belief in God, but belief in that power of God, plus willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things. What's this new order of things? We surrender to God and trust our lives, trust him with the results, and we practice spiritual principles in all our affairs. We practice honesty, self-sacrifice for others, things like that. And he says, yeah, simple, but not really easy. A price had to be paid. The destruction of self-centeredness. Our book tells us on page 62, selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of the illness. We have to destroy the self-centeredness. And there he's in the hospital. And the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics he could help. You know, already God's directing his thoughts. God doesn't say, okay, you know, you surrendered your life to me, wait seven years, and then you can have access to me. You know, as fast as we run to God, he's been running toward us even more quickly. And then Bill, a great principle, a really important principle. Um, bottom of page 14, he says that Ebby told him how imperative, like non-negotiable, to work with others. Why? Because faith without works is dead. And he says, if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life, top of page 15, through work and self-sacrifice for others, that's how we perfect and enlarge our spiritual life, work and self-sacrifice for others says, then he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. I don't like that word certain there in there because it's telling me that, yeah, it's pretty certain, not pretty certain. Okay. It's certain you are going to have trials and low spots. There are going to be hard things in life, but it says, if you do this work, you will survive them. If you don't, you will drink or binge again. And then what good is your faith? So Bill said he abandoned himself to this work. And he said, you know, it was good. People remain skeptical. So we have to realize that if people are skeptical about our new diet, our new program, it's okay. We just go work with other people instead. Let them be skeptical. And he says sometimes he was plagued by ways of self-pity and resentment. But when all other measures failed, when 10 steps didn't work, um, he found that work with another alcoholic would save the day. So that tells me that sometimes, yes, yeah, self-pity and resentment may come and it may come after me hard, like a plague. The antidote is working harder with others. And he continues on bottom of page 15 by saying the joy of living, we really have even under pressure and difficulty even if circumstances aren't great. I mean, this program got going, like I think during the depression when things were really hard, they didn't have much money. It didn't matter. And he says, there's scarcely any form of trouble and misery, which has not been overcome among us. That's why it's so great to have a fellowship because, you know, if I'm having a problem in a certain area, let's say marriage, kids, job, the odds are one of you has had a similar problem and has overcome it. Um, and when it says overcome, I think that means either two things, one of two things will happen. Either 
the problem gets resolved in a miraculous way, which we who've worked the program have seen and have experienced, or we get the grace and the tools to rise above it. So page 16, he says, an alcoholic in his cups, which I'm assuming means an alcoholic still drinking, is an unlovely creature. Yeah, a compulsive eater who's still in the food and hasn't worked the steps may not be the sweetest person on the planet. That's okay. My job is to love them anyway. That's a measure of my own spiritual experience. And he says, there should be a vast amount of fun about it. Like we should, we are people who should enjoy life. Even though we're serious about working this program, life is fun. Um, and then he closes by saying, most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. I looked up the word utopia, an ideal place. We have it with us here and now. And then a beautiful tribute to his friend, Ebby. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And aren't we all just so blessed and grateful and lucky to be part of that circle, peace on earth and goodwill to our fellow sufferers. And that is all I have. <laughs>